If you choose to heave during the postlude, please do so quietly so as not to interrupt those remaining for worship and meditation. If you choose to heave, yes. Now, I am sure that all of us have made our share of mistakes. Uh, going into this uh, hurricane, we had heard that the, the winds were traveling uh, around 145 miles an hour, and that they would, the, the numbers that I had heard that were going to be hitting us in the Lake Mary Sanford area were like 80 miles per hour and such. And I told my wife that if, uh, if it goes up to around 95 miles an hour or, or, or above, then I was going to put the plywood up to, bear, to protect the, the windows and such from flying debris. And so I woke up Thursday morning because I knew it was going to be hitting uh, Friday, Friday morning during our sleeping time. And so when I went online Thursday morning, early Thursday morning, uh, I saw that the, it had been upgraded. It was at about 145 mile an hour wind hurricane. It was going to come close enough to us and that the winds that we were going to sustain were about 100, 101 miles per hour. So I said, I'm going to be good to my promise. I'm going to put the plywood up. About three hours later, right before I'm putting the plywood up, they downgrade it and say, ah, JK, it's only going to be about 80 miles an hour. And, uh, well, they didn't say JK. But I, I, I'm going to be good to my promise because it might change and it could go back up to 100, so I'm going to put the plywood up. So uh, Saxon, is Saxon here? Saxon, thank you. Saxon uh, came on over and he helped me. Jim had to work all day that day. Publix, I guess, was just extremely busy slammed. So he's helping me and it's, it's downpouring rain. We are drenched in water and we're drilling holes into my wall and we got it all secured. It took us about three hours to put the plywood up. This is plywood that we've had in the past and we stored and I've drilled these holes before and filled them. So, you know, I'm trying to find those holes where I drilled before. But, so I find them and I'm, I, I put the plywood up. So we go to bed that night and I'm feeling kind of secure, but I'm wondering, is my house going to leak? Because you may recall some stories are shared from the 04 hurricanes pulling 70 gallons of water from our wall. Now we put elastomeric paint all around the, the house and we hadn't had any issues since, but I'm just wondering, okay, God, so the hurricane hit, the winds hit and they're like 50 to 70 miles an hour by the time I get up in the morning and I go downstairs and I'm the only one up and I'm turning the lights on at six in the morning and I reach down to feel uh, if the carpet's wet and the carpet is wet. And I can't tell you the sinking feeling that I felt. I'm serious. I almost heaved. That's, I just thought, God, no. I had images of if the power didn't go out, okay, of our wet or dry vac that, by the way, is here. Anyway, wet or dry vac sucking water out of the, the carpet pull, or pulling the carpet back, putting towels down, wringing it out in case the, the power does go out because we had to do this. And at the end of the day, one of those hurricanes, because the power went up, our, our hands and all of us were pitching. Our hands were so red and sore from wringing 70 gallons of water out of these towels. And I was just, anyway, I felt sick to my stomach and I just bent down and I just said, God, please, not again. And here's what I realized, and God was gracious, and we did not have the kind of water intrusion that we did before. It was only, it was in four spots. It was only about a foot, foot by a foot or a foot by two feet or something. 
And, but I realized that by drilling these holes into the wall to secure the plywood, I allowed access for the water to go into my walls. And that's just the nature of hurricane-forced winds. And so by actually trying to be good and prepare for the storm, I made it worse for us. And there wasn't the kind of flying debris that we anticipated. But I, I would have to say, you know, I think I made a mistake. But at least I was able to learn, and I don't know if I'm going to. I don't know if I'm going to do that again. But we all make mistakes, and the 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 question though is: in the midst of our mistakes, is God able to redeem our mistakes? Because sometimes these mistakes are sins; they're offenses against an infinitely holy God, and they may be offenses against others, brothers and sisters in Christ, neighbors who don't know Christ. And, you know, is God able to redeem this and somehow turn it around for good? Now, I can honestly say that in the midst of the, well, I should say after the hurricane, um, I had an opportunity to see some of my neighbors that I hadn't seen in a while. Because we can all get so busy, it's like you live across the street and what is your name again type of thing. Um, so we were, there was a roofing guy in the neighborhood uh, that had been called, and so we were talking with him and several of the neighbors and got to, to meet some of my neighbors that I hadn't met before. So that was awesome, uh, and speak to my next-door neighbor, and because, I mean, we can just get so busy, and, and good is coming of this, um, and a lot of people pitched in. I, I hope the uh, community here feels blessed. We weren't able to do all the parking lots, but we were able to do, a, a, you know, half the parking lot or more, and the sidewalks and clear it off, and we hope that's a blessing to our neighbors. But the bottom line is God can take something that from our perspective is really bad, and he can turn it around for our good if we allow ourselves, if, if God is able to work in us and bring us to this certain place of brokenness so that we look to him. And the, the title of the sermon this morning is The Redemption of Failure. And I would venture to say that all of us have failed, and, and some of it is just mistakes. We we drilled holes, and we probably shouldn't have, and we got a water intrusion, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there are some times in which I have neglected to do something, and I see the, the, the consequences of that failure, and man, I just, wow, I wish I hadn't forgotten to do that, okay? But God is able even to take our sins, and he's able to turn them around for our good, for our good church, and for his glory. And we see one of these examples in Joshua chapter 10. So turn there with me, if you would, Joshua 10. We're going to continue through our series, Taking the Land. And this is going to be important because whatever that promised land is that God has been speaking to your heart, and, and maybe it's numerous areas of application for your life, if you don't get this, because this is inevitable as far as making mistakes because we're human. You know, they say to err is human to... Uh, to, to really foul things up takes a computer. Uh, but we all make mistakes. We all, sorry about you computer geeks, didn't mean to step on some of your toes there. Uh, okay, yes, I did. Uh, the truth, though, is uh, we make mistakes, we fail, and some of those times they're very deep because we offend and hurt others, and we offend an all-holy God. And yet as we look through Joshua 10, we're, I, I, my prayer has been, God, show us eternal truths from this that we can walk away from and 
continue to walk out God's perfect plan for our lives because sin does not have to mean this incredible interruption and God just says, well, you know what? I'm going to have to switch to a plan B or a plan C or maybe for some of us, it's like a plan Q or R or S or it's like, God, how many times am I going to fail you? God is the God of redemption. Joshua 1 verse, Joshua 10 verse 1. Now Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And that the people of Gibeon, you remember from last week, the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all his men, its men were good fighters. So Adoni Zedek, lost my place. So Adoni, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hohem, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Now, I just want you to imagine these foes of Israel feel like they have just lost some of their family, if you will. They feel as if they have, these people have turned against them and have sided with the Israelites, and it's going to make it more possible for the Israelites to gain victory over them and take their land. And so these, these kings are really ticked off. Now, they're Amorites. The, Jebu, the, the people in Gibeon are Hivites. And so it's very possible that there was a league, an alliance that was made. And so Gibeon would then have broken that alliance and created a new alliance with the Israelites. So just understand, that's where these kings are coming from. Verse 5, it says, Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all of their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. That's about 20 miles away, understand. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them with a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Ezekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Ezekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to, the, to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped 
till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp of Gil at Gilgal. Now the following verses actually through the rest of the chapter would at least chronologically fall between verses 14 and 15 after they had initially fought the five kings. The five kings ran, their armies fleed. The five kings actually hid in the cave of Makeda and, but their armies fled to their respective cities. And Joshua pursued them, and it speaks of how he pursued them. And the reason why I'm not going to share it, uh, read through this, uh, is because um, it is somewhat repetitive. And its, its main point is Israel left no survivors, which was the command God had given them. And I've explained why God gave that command uh, a couple of times. I'm not going to do that again this morning. But let's understand that there, it wasn't just a battle and, you know, a couple thousand lost their life. They pursued these troops, these armies, to their respective cities and completely wiped them out. Let's go back now to the very beginning. Um, you're aware of, from last week, the Gibeonites' deception. They realized that Israel had a vast army and it had full intention of taking their land. And this, this taking of the land was a promise. God had spoken to Abraham 430 years before saying, Abraham, look around. I'm going to give you this land, not to, your, not to yourself presently, but in about 400 years, I'm going to call your people out of slavery from Egypt and I'm going to give them this land. That is my promise to you. But he says, but the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full. I would imagine uh, sins of the Amorites had reached their full. It was time for God to bring judgment upon them, and so he used Israel. But this city of Gibeon, and there were three others in league with them that joined them, pulled a fast one on Israel and consequently presented themselves as a nation, a people far away. Uh, apparently, somehow they had heard that Israel was to treat nations that were far away differently than the nations of the land of Canaan. From the land of Canaan, they were just to completely destroy them. And if they were far away, they would have the opportunity to offer them peace. And if the city said, nothing doing, okay, destroy them. But if they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to surrender to you and we're going to seek a peace treaty here. He says, you may do that. And so they, they, they foist this plan upon Israel and, and deceive them. And we realize if you were to look back to chapter 9, verse 14, it says, the men of Israel sampled their provisions because they came across as, you know, with tattered clothes, with food that was moldy and the like. They... And they said they came from a faraway country. This was a deception. And so Israel was, okay, well, let's just look, see what you got. And it seemed to bear, to bear out that what they were saying was true. But it says, 
but they did not inquire of the Lord. And I, and I propose two things that they should have done. They should have given the, the Gibeonites three to seven days, whatever it would be needed, to find out from the inhabitants of the land where these people really were from. And if they did, they would have found out that they were nearby and they would have not have made the peace treaty with them because they were expressly told by God, wipe out all of these people. But they made this covenant and now they couldn't. Number two, they should have inquired of the Lord. So Joshua is recording here and he's, he's confessing, we made a mistake. We, we should have gone the extra mile if we should have done our homework and we should have done two things that we failed to do. And he highlights one of them. And the other, the other we just discover because within three days they do find out these people were close by. And our question now is, in view of this mistake, we learned last week, would it have been okay to go back on that treaty because they used deception to lure the Israelites in. And the Bible tells us very expressly, they should be good to this treaty. Even though it was birthed out of deception, they said okay. And we know this because when Saul destroyed many of the Gibeonites in his land, God judged Israel for it. We discover this in 2 Samuel. And this is Joshua's opinion. We must be good to this treaty. In view of this then, Adoni Zedek, which means my Lord of righteousness, very similar, you may have heard of Melchizedek. We pronounce it Melchizedek. That means my king of righteousness or my righteous king. Melchizedek was truly a God-honoring king and priest who believed in the one true God and this king absolutely did not. So he gathers four other Amorite kings in league, and he says, let's attack Gibeon. And so Gibeon, once they're being attacked, he sends word, the king sends word 20 miles away to Joshua. And I want you to, to just think, if you were Joshua and you heard this word, yeah, the people that came to you and they deceived you so that now you're obligated to keep this peace treaty and not destroy them. They're, they're, in, they're in over their heads right now. They're being attacked. What would you say at that point? Something in me would say, Oh, really now? I think they're about to receive what they deserve. And if I can't destroy them, that doesn't mean others won't. They're going to receive the wrath of God and the discipline and punishment of God. And it won't be at my hand. It will be at the other Amorite king's hand. But that is not how Joshua responded. There was something inside of him that said, I am not just going to make good on this covenant of peace but I am going to go the extra mile because inherent in this treaty of peace, they basically said, we are your servants. Let me translate that. You are the sovereign and we are your vassals. The sovereignty treaties of their day would be made with other people groups and a king would honor that, much like um, a knight who ruled in a castle would protect the people of his land. That'd probably be a, a fairly good analogy. And so Joshua, he felt obligated. 
not this sense of revenge, but rather he felt obligated. You know what? I know they don't deserve this, but I believe that as their sovereign, as the one who is engaged now in this treaty, they are our vassals, our servants. We need to protect them. Now, that goes against my grain, but Jesus did tell us in the Sermon on the Mount when a Roman or like a Roman soldier would come to you and ask you to go a mile, go with him too. Because a Roman soldier could ask any Jew in Jesus' day, I want you to carry my stuff, my backpack, etc. I want you to carry it. The government obligated you to go a mile. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? That is so unjust. I realize that. But if someone asks you to go a mile, go with them too. Take the high road. In this way, you are demonstrating the love of God. And I, I, I can't tell you, when we choose as God's people to take the high road, rather than to exercise judgment, God always blesses that. He always blesses that. And he fills us with joy. And God honors these, these things. Now, we, we, I don't know about you, but if I were Joshua and I were to hear this report, I'm not so sure I would believe it. Hey, they deceived us once. Maybe they're going to deceive us again. Maybe, they're gonna, maybe they have entered into a treaty with other kings and they're luring us into an ambush. That's the way I would have thought. Now, I don't know, maybe there's more details that we're just not aware of. But as you were to look in verse 8, it says, my version says in, in verse 7 that they, they started their march to Gilgal. Then in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. The Hebrew can also be translated, the Lord had said to Joshua. Now, I believe that's significant because if I, before I were, I mean, I already blew it and didn't seek the Lord on the first occasion with the Gibeonites. I'm going to do that now. And you can only imagine that God spoke to Joshua. Why? Because Joshua inquired of the Lord. So he is inquiring of God and God had spoken to him and reassured him, perhaps in this prayer that's not recorded, Joshua said, okay, God, they... Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I am not going to get shamed in this. I am not going to get duped into another deception. God, I need you to speak clearly. You show me what to do right now. And God spoke to him. And he says, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And so Joshua, with that reassurance, with that promise, he marches all night into battle. Now, there are some advantages that I'm sure that Joshua thought of. He is not just walking blindly into a situation. He realizes the benefits of this situation. Now, by situation, I am talking about a mistake that he and the Israelites made. I would venture to even call it a sin because they failed 
to inquire of God about the Gibeonites' deception. They were blindsided by it. They did not seek God about it. God now is able to take this problem, this sin, this mistake, this failure, and he's able to work something pretty awesome through it. Because realize that now these five kings who come from the southern portion of the land of Canaan, they're all now gathered in one place. And they're able to, in one place, in one battle, wipe them out and destroy them. And so it's to Joshua's advantage. If God is in this, and they're not being duped by the Gibeonites, I'm going to go into battle here. So just from a military standpoint, it would be a very good idea if they're not being deceived and being lured into an ambush, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. And so he is now able to, you know what? God has stirred up these kings against the Gibeonites. He is gathering them. He is gathering them together. You see, God, even though in view of Joshua and the Israelites' sin, God is still working in this situation. And I would even venture to say that there was a measure of repentance, though chapter 9 doesn't tell us. Joshua does acknowledge, we blew it, guys. We just blew it. And it's just in Joshua's nature to get things right with God when he blows it. Now God is working behind the scenes and he's stirring up these kings that on the face of it was like, oh man. Now, I mean, it's, it's easy to just take one city after another because we overwhelmed them. But now they're all gathered together. God is assuring Joshua, I'm in this. Not one of them will be able to stand up against you. And I just want to encourage you, as you would be stepping into situations in your day-to-day -day life, and it seems overwhelming, and you almost feel as if, wow, God is now judging me for my sin. Realize that we serve a God of redemption. That means that when we, when we repent and when we turn things over to him, when we truly see the, the destruction or, or the offense of our sin, when we recognize that God is able to step in and redeem it. Because church, we serve a God of mercy. We serve a God who is eager to step into your failures. And, and for, as we are responding, God have mercy, forgive me, for him now to act on our behalf and do something amazing on our behalf. This is just the nature of God's grace and God's mercy. And so here's what happens. He steps into battle. They surprise them because they marched all night. Battle strategy. But it, it's not just that Joshua had this really cool battle strategy. Let's surprise them because they're not expecting this. They would expect us to kind of wait and think about it and go into our little committees about what we should do and weighing the pros and the cons and do we have enough resources financially, manpower, and maybe a week later respond to this. By then, too late, Gibeonites, they're wiped off the face of the earth because Joshua, you took too long. The nature of committees, right? And so Joshua says, we're jumping into this right now. We're, we're, we're marching all night. 
And can you imagine if you were an Israelite, oh, we're doing what now? We're, we're, you're waking me up. You're, we're marching right now. I don't even have time to kiss my wife goodbye. Uh, and and I'm, I'm heading out because we're going to do what? Rescue these very people who deceived us? Really? And Joshua says, yes, indeed. Yes. And so they march all night, and the Bible says that when they arrive there and they engage them in battle, that, they, that God throws them into confusion. Now, there's three things that God does on behalf of Israel as they attack the, the Amorite kings to overwhelm them, overcome them, and destroy them. Three things. Number one, it says here that he threw them into confusion. A lot of times when we talked about ambush, I believe it was two weeks ago, we looked at this concept of how God sets an ambush. He kind of lures the enemy, and not just in battle strategy, but in our own personal lives. God lures the enemy because Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, and he's not omnipotent. And so God lures him many times just to suck him right into this situation where he can step in on our behalf and decimate the enemy. And so we see the, the grand example of this in the cross in which Jesus died. It was Satan's plan to crucify and kill the Son of God, thinking, man, I've, I've finally gotten one over the God who has punished and judged us and, and me and, and my army, the, the fallen angels. And you can almost feel this as you're reading through the Word of God, as Satan is planning to deceive and, and to lure, to fill, to fill um, Judas Iscariot, it says, to fill his heart and lead him astray and betray Jesus. It was Satan's full intent to crucify the Son of God, and he did. But he's doing so, he stepped in to God's ambush. And I believe that God wants to set things up in our life, even in the midst of our failures, church, if we thoroughly repent and understand how my, my sin truly has offended God. And as we call out to him and as we cry out to him, he wants to be able to bring the enemy in just so that he can destroy him and show you his infinite mercy and his grace in your life because he loves us that much. And so he lures, he lures these kings together. And then when the Israelites show up, it says God threw them into confusion. And as we looked at some of these ambushes in the Old Testament, it's as if God entered the camp and stirred up this tremendous fear so that they would end up even attacking one another. Now, I don't know exactly what happened here. You're talking about five different cities ruled by a king. They very well may have started attacking one another. But regardless of what happened, God stepped in, threw them into confusion. The second thing is they begin to flee. And when they flee, there is a, there's an incredible storm. And we're talking about the storm of God's love. This truly was God's love intervening on behalf of Israel. And it says that it hailed. And the hailstones were of such size and such magnitude that it says that more people of the Amorites, notice it doesn't say anything about the Israelites, just the Amorites. More of the Amorites died by the hailstones than by the swords of Israel. It's, 
Just like in, in Egypt, God protected his people in Goshen, but he judged the rest of Egypt. God was sovereignly protecting Israel, and the hailstones fell upon the Amorites, and more of them were killed by the hailstones than by the swords of the Israelites. That was the second thing God did to step in. And it's almost as if God is saying, awesome opportunity. I want to show Joshua and the people of Israel just how much I love them and how much I am willing to fight for them. Now, the third thing that happens is that Joshua realizes the day is moving on and it, it, it's eventually, he realizes that the day is going to be gone before this battle is over I need more daylight. If we're going to win this battle, I, I can't just win it halfway, set up camp, because they're all going to flee, and there's so many of them. I mean, it's, gonna, it's, it's as if it's a wasted battle. We didn't accomplish what we needed to accomplish. Joshua needed to inflict sufficient harm and injury to these armies so that they were weakened and if they did flee, it would be an easy thing to overtake them. But they were together. Now is the time that we need to destroy them and weaken them. And this is what he does. In, in, in a, a declaration form, and I'm sure that his prayer was much more than that, but he says, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, moon over the valley of Ajalon. Now, when he says moon over Ajalon, it, it may well be that it's in the latter part of the afternoon, well after noon, and you can see the, the moon and the sun. I mean, that, that's certainly a possibility to see both the moon and the sun during the day. But God caused the sun to stand still for almost an entire day, it says. Now, here is something that, that's just so significant. He said, the Bible says, in verse 14, there has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man. I want you to consider this. Scripture is telling us that this, something like this has never happened before. Of this magnitude. Now, you might reflect on, well, the parting of the Red Sea, all the ten plagues of Egypt or the parting of the Jordan or all of these, but all of them, understand all of them, were initiated by the command of God. You may remember the parting of the Red Sea. There are the Israelites, they're gathered before the Red Sea, they're hemmed in on one side by the sea, they can't cross it or they're going to drown, and by the other, the army of the, the Egyptians. And they're not ready to take on the army of the Egyptians with all of their chariots. They would certainly lose. Plus, they have women and children who would die. God, what are we going to do? And God says, so stand back. I've got something awesome planned. He says, Moses, just hold out your, your staff. And when he does, the sea is parted. And of course, we know that after they, they fled across and the, the pillar of fire at night was removed, the Egyptian army fled after them and the Red Sea came together, destroyed the entire Egyptian army. God fought on behalf of Israel, but that was at the initiation of God's command. Here's my plan. This is what you need to do. That's what happened with all of the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan. Here this is different, in which the initiation is from the heart of man. And Joshua is crying out to God, 
I need you, God. If, this, if we're going to redeem this situation and, and be good in this battle, I need you right now to do the most amazing thing. I need you to keep the sun hot in the sky as we fight this battle because I need more daylight. Now, I don't know about you. On the record of all of history, nothing like this has happened except what is recorded in Scripture. This is, God stepped in and he heard the heart of a man like he had never done before. Why? Because God wanted to fight for Israel. And I'm just going to encourage you as you think through uh, your own personal situations, your own failures, because again, this resulted that with Gibeon, all of this resulted because they had entered into a treaty with, with the Gibeonites and they felt obligated to make good on it. And God was able to redeem that failure and bring the Israelites through to the point where they were able to gain a tremendous victory. And I want to encourage you, what victory are you needing? But it, what's so easy to happen is in our mind, we're thinking, well, you know what? I failed. I really blew it. I sinned against you, God. And how does that impact you? Doesn't it make you sometimes feel not just like a failure, but why on earth would God ever want to step in and rescue me from this. I deserve this. I deserve this punishment or, or this, this, this bad thing that's happening, this judgment. We might even view it as a judgment. And it, it would be easy for us to say, wow, God, I'm not even going to pray about this. I am unworthy. If you were to go back, it's very clear that when God spoke to Joshua, he said, not one of them will be able to withstand you. Can I just tell you right now, for those of you who are facing failure, facing these sins, Joshua, I am sure Joshua got right with God. And that's why he points out, we failed to seek God in this. But in spite of that, God was eager to step in, even as he's eager to step into your life and redeem your situation. If you were to keep your finger here in, in Joshua 10 and turn to Zechariah, not Zephaniah, very similar, but Zechariah, But in Zechariah chapter 3, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Or you can make it simple and go to the table of contents. But it says in Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to encounter a name that's the exact same as we read in this story. Except this Joshua is not the leader of the people in military battles, he is the leader of the people with regard, he's the high priest. It says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Zechariah. Zechariah is having a vision. Then he, the Lord, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen 
Israel, excuse me, chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you? Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Understand that that phrase is also used in Amos to refer to God's judgment that has come upon a people, but he has chosen to extend mercy and snatch them out of that difficult situation. And he's referring to God judging Israel, but in the midst of that judgment, God is still going to bring back a remnant, and he wants to, as you will, if you will, snatch this firebrand from the fire. And he's seeing Joshua, who, who was the high priest that came back after the Babylonian captivity. They're coming back to a decimated land. It's been ravished with poverty. They're having to completely rebuild Jerusalem, completely rebuild everything in their nation, and, and specifically rebuild the temple. Now, I don't know about you, you... In a situation like this, if I were Joshua, I would wonder, wow, as a people, we have so offended God with our idolatry. Is there any mercy that God would ever extend to us? And even in the midst of our sin, isn't it easy for us to feel so unworthy, so condemned, as the devil would want to constantly accuse us? And it says here, it says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And the Lord right here is giving a picture of you and me by the cross shedding those filthy garments, shedding those sins, and taking on now the very righteousness of Christ, not our own, but the righteousness of Christ. And being found in that righteousness, he rescues us, he delivers us, and God has awesome plans for us. Even in the midst when the devil, Satan, whose name, by the way, means accuser, accuses us, accuses us. And he wants to accuse to demonstrate we are so unworthy of any blessing of God. And, and church, this is true. I am totally unworthy of God's blessing because of my sin. But it is only as we are found in Christ does God say, now, in my son, you are found worthy. And there is such a heart of God to extend mercy and pour out blessing upon blessing because of this. In spite of our failures, in spite of our sin, God's heart is to bless. He did this for Joshua. He did this for Joshua, the high priest. In, in, in this vision, my heart is to quiet the enemy's voice that would say, you're a failure. You are unworthy. You cannot. You really think God loves you. We can wallow in this, in this accusation, in this sense of failure, in this, in this unworthiness. And God says, that is not my heart for you, not as you are found in Christ. And so as we turn back to the book of Joshua, we see here Joshua, he does not take that road that says, well, I'm just unworthy. He does not take that road that leads to more failure and says, well, you know what, why should I even try? But he recognizes the grace and mercy of God and that we serve a God who is able to redeem the most improbable situations. 
can I ask you, are you bold like Joshua? I'm not, I'm not saying being presumptive that somehow by your righteousness, God would want to bless you, but because of his righteousness, his favor, just because he loves us and he desires to lavish us with his love, that's why he wants to step in. And based on that truth alone, be bold. He cried out to God, cause the sun to stand still. Are you serious? Now, I've never asked God to do that. I have prayed this way. And I've, I've even seen uh, Juliana many years ago. I was working. I needed to finish my paint touch-up work that day. I had to. And it was a typical summer afternoon in Florida where around 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it just storms. And I'm seeing the rain clouds developing to the north and then it moves to the east, and I see another one off to the west. And throughout the day, I'm just saying, God, you know I have to get this work done. I have to leave and head back on Thursday, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, God, I need you to hold off this rain. And throughout the entire afternoon, I saw rain clouds to the south, to the east, the west, the north. I saw them all around, but it did not rain one drop where I was, and I was able to complete the work. So I'm on the phone that night, and I'm talking to, to Meredith because I'm in Orlando, and she's with her parents with the kids in South Florida. I'm saying, you, this is the most amazing thing happened, but you know, all, it rained all around me, but it did not rain one drop. I mean, you could see the rain over there and over there, and you could see it, but it did not rain on the parking lot where I was at. It was, it was awesome. And she said, well, of course. Last night, or this morning, whichever it was, Juliana, and she was, what, six, seven years old at the time, and we, we had, there was a prophetic word when Juliana was in, in Meredith's womb that she was going to be a warrior. So I thought, well, it's going to be a boy. Okay, wow, all right. <laughs> Wrong. And Juliana is a warrior in many respects, and she is demonstrating, and she, Meredith said she was just pacing back and forth. She said, Lord, I pray that you would not allow it to rain where my daddy is, and that you would hold off the rain. She began to march around the room as my family had been praying the night before, and so the very next day, I'm offering up these measly little prayers, Lord, God, it'd be great if it didn't rain, and my, my daughter when the night before was saying, you know, in essence, Satan, how dare you cause it to rain where my daddy's going to work? Oh, you're not going to do it. I'm going to get in your face, and you are not going to do it. And God, please hold off the rain and protect my dad so he's able to get all of his work done, and I needed to get it done. And so she said, well, honey, of course it didn't rain today. Wow, that's awesome. God loves to be able to step in where we are at. And, and I'll confess to you, man, I've blown it. So many times when, when I was seeking to expand the business some years ago, Mike Jeffords was working with me at the time. The plan was eventually to have Mike spin off with his own van. And I'm kind of weighing through the opportunity. I purchase a van, purchase a couple thousand dollars of supplies, you know, uh, use it as the business financially build up and put it in there. And Meredith and I had kind of talked about it earlier in the year, and now I'm moving forward with it. And when I had made all of these purchases, she had said, but Mike, I kind of felt like you moved ahead and, and we didn't pray about it as we should have together. And, and I, I didn't know that you were going to do this now. I mean, I heard you talk about it, but I don't understand it. 
I had the van completely outfitted, ready to go out the very next day. I think it was on a Wednesday. And that Tuesday, I walk into a lot, a major account that I had, and realized I had lost that account. And it devastated me. It was like, wow, God, I can't send Mike out right now. Because if I do, then he'll, I'm going to divide up the accounts. He won't have enough, and I won't have enough. I don't know, I don't know what you're, what, what's going on here, God. But I need you to somehow redeem this situation. I had poured thousands of dollars into this. I repented because I, I realized even though when Meredith had said that, I argued with her and I thought we had talked about this and blah, blah, blah. And I just came to realize, you know what? I just need to repent right now. I need to get my heart right with God because it's only when I do that can God even begin to extend mercy. And right now, I need his mercy. A couple of months later, Mike got an eye infection, and God totally closed the door of being able to have him go out in his van. And I, I just said, okay, God, my future's in your hands. I'm just going to lay this before you. It was at that point that God began to grow the church sufficiently to gradually take me on staff. And it, it wasn't my own doing. God did it. And he said, he just spoke to me. He said, Mike, I know you have these great plans for your business so that you can have a lot of trucks out there and be able to pastor full time. The only problem is that's not my plan. And I need you now to go through my plan and let me, allow me to step in because I need you to go down this road and it's a hard road, but I need you to go down this road because I need to show you just how merciful I am and how vast my grace is and how much I am for you and I am willing to fight for you, but I can only fight for you if you're engaged in battle. So it was kind of like a I need you to go through a really hard time so that I can show you that I can come through and do awesome miracles. And God did that one after the other and, and just amazed me. And, and I have a repertoire as a result of God's testimonies stepping in. My children have seen God answer prayers at the 11th hour, 59th minute. And God has just done amazing things. But he had to bring me into that battle. And I had to lose that battle, if you will, for God to be able to open up doors. Because now I said, okay, God, it's all in your hands. All these ideas that I had, they just got flushed, out the, flushed down the drain. God, I need you now to step in. Right now, maybe you are this, uh, in a situation where you're wondering yourself, you have run so far from God. You have fought God so much. You're wondering, how can God ever love me again? How can God ever forgive me? How would God ever answer a prayer like, wow, God caused the sun to stand in the middle of the sky? How would God ever even consider doing some miracle like that in my life? I am totally unworthy. Why would he even forgive me? Why would he welcome me back? Why would he love me again? And all of these questions can come to our minds. And I want to tell you, God will do this because his love for you is vast. And he will pursue you until he overcomes you and you surrender to him. This is the awesomeness of the love of our God. He will pursue you 
because he loves you. This is the grace of God. He will not ever give up on you. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, the Bible says that he was a murderer. By murderer, I mean he felt so righteous by persecuting the church of Jesus Christ to the point where he would turn them over and he would, in doing that, watch them be condemned to death. And we know of one example in Stephen that he held their cloaks as they stoned Stephen and he died. But he wasn't just a participant in some of these martyrdoms. Many of them happened at his own hand. And he viewed himself as a murderer. And yet God saw fit to pour out his grace upon such a person as this. Do you think that you have actually sinned beyond the redemptive abilities of God? Really? And consider Paul. Look at how not, God, not only did God forgive Paul, but opened up huge opportunities for God to use Paul. As unworthy as Paul was, even to the day he died, Paul was unworthy. But see, Paul was in Christ, and so are you. Can you stand with me? We're about to enter into a time of communion right now. What a perfect opportunity for us now in the heat of the moment, if you will, to consider the grace of God and the redemptive abilities of God to step into your life situation and, sh and show you, purposely show you his amazing, immeasurable mercy. I'm just going to encourage you as we do this, as we, as we close in prayer, and as we now partake of communion, consider the vastness of God's mercy in your life. Father, you are so good. Father, even though Joshua was so unworthy of your blessing, he prayed the boldest prayer ever, and you came and you answered. Because the bottom line, God, this, this life, this is not about me. It's not about us. It is all about you. It's all about your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace and about winning our heart and us once again pursuing you and your agenda, not ours. So Father, I pray, forgive us when we have stepped out, when we have offended you. And God, would you step in and would you wash us clean? Would you call us back to yourself, God? Would you win our hearts? Would you win our affections, God? Would you speak past the clutches that sin's hold has on us and trying to pull us back into the things of the world? And would you cut them off, God? And would you demonstrate your unfailing love? And would you rescue us? Would you pull us up out of the mire and set our feet on the rock of Jesus Christ? And in the solidness of the foundation of your promises for those who repent and turn to you. God, you have blessings in store beyond our understanding. 
will never fathom your mercies, God. They are beyond me. So God, as we stand here this morning, we recognize how we truly have offended your heart. In your mercy, would you step into our lives? Would you be so gracious as to correct what we have totally blown? Would you speak truth into our hearts right now? We know the enemy wants to just condemn and accuse, but you're beyond that, God. Redeem what's been done. Redeem us. Redeem our situation, God.